Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello, my name is Kelly Brownell. I'm the director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity at Yale University. Our guest for this podcast is Dr. Rudolph Leibel, Christopher J. Murphy, professor of diabetes research, professor of pediatrics and medicine at Columbia University Medical Center, a noted scholar and researcher in the area of obesity, genetics, body weight regulation, and a variety of other related issues. Uh, Dr. Leibel has been one of the shining lights in our field and the person who's contributed tremendously through his research. So welcome. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. So the topic today is why is it so hard to lose weight? Now, on one hand, doesn't seem like such a mystery. We live in this horrible environment with inducements left and right that uh, make food attractive. It all tastes really good. Uh, people may have psychological reasons why they lose weight and then return to food for comfort, things like that. But you've really looked at the biological underpinnings of this, and I think done some absolutely amazing research. And uh, at least in my mind, you and your colleagues were the first to, to study this way back in the 1980s. So I'm delighted to have you here to talk about it. Tell us how what got you interested in this and what some of the early work was that you did. So I am originally uh, trained as a pediatrician and as an endocrinologist, and endocrinologists are the people to whom other physicians refer patients with what they think are glandular problems, and obesity for many years was considered a glandular problem. Turns out, actually, this may not be so incorrect, although the gland at the time was not known. It turns out body fat produces a hormone, which is important in the regulation of body fat, that is leptin. But at the time, I was seeing a lot of obese children and was not able to do very much for them and decided to go, as they say, to the bench to try to find out more about the biology of the disorder itself. And it was at that point that I began studies which were conducted initially at Rockefeller University with Jules Hirsch and subsequently with Michael Rosenbaum on the biology of the maintenance of reduced body weight. And what we found initially, quite surprisingly actually, is that individuals who lost weight under very closely regulated circumstances, this is in an inpatient clinical research setting, actually showed when they achieved a 10 or a 20 percent reduction in body weight and were stabilized at that lower body weight, they were expending about 15 or 20 percent fewer calories of energy. The body was actually using less energy corrected for their new reduced body size than it, that same individual did when they were 10 or 20 percent heavier. The way we often sort of describe this is, is, is it is as if your metabolism went from being a large Cadillac SUV to something like a motorcycle. The body actually is compensating or adjusting in a sense for the fact that you've lost weight. And our initial interpretation of this was that this is a defense mechanism that the body senses a threat to survival, actually, when you have reduced your body weight and is actually reducing energy expenditure so that the conservation of your remaining body fat will last longer. And this probably, or undoubtedly, was a very useful adaptation thousands and thousands or even hundreds of thousands of years ago during evolution, but now actually helps to defeat otherwise well-meaning and quite effective 
weight reduction by causing the individual to become so efficient metabolically that they quickly regain their weight, which is the unfortunate uh, consequence in 90 or 95% of instances. So just to put some hypothetical numbers to this, let's say you have two women who both weigh 150 pounds. One started out at 130, got to 150, and then went to 170, but then reduced back to the 150. She's the person, the kind of person you were studying, the person who's been reduced from a higher weight. Let's say the other woman weighs the same 150 pounds, but that's what she's always weighed, and she's just been stable at that. You're saying that they're, they're different metabolic creatures because one is reduced and the other one is that, not. That's exactly right. So if I put in a lineup in front of you 250-pound women that you could not otherwise distinguish, they have same body weight, same body composition, the one who had lost 10 or 20% of her body weight to get there would actually be underexpending energy relative to the woman who had always been at that weight by about 15 or 20 percent. Now, Meaning that she would have to eat less to maintain the same 150 pounds. Absolutely correct. And this may not seem like a big difference, 10 or 20 percent, but the normal, say, 150-pound individual could take or does take 700,000 to a million calories of food a year just to maintain their body weight. So a uh, 10 or a 20% error, if you will, or under expenditure of that is a substantial number of calories and could account easily for a 25-pound weight regain within a year. And is this um, proportional to how much people have lost? So like if a person's lost a little bit, will they have a little bit of this effect, but if they've lost a lot, they'll have a lot of it? Yeah, this is an important question. So the answer to your question is no, at least to the extent that we're able to understand this. This is not like a spring-loaded process. So the further away you get from your starting weight, the stronger the resistance get. That's not how it works. It seems to kick in maximally at, at 10% of reduction in body weight. Whether it is present at 5, we don't know. We've never done that, but it's equally strong at 10 and 20%. So it doesn't get stronger. It seems to kick in probably maximally somewhere between 5 and 10%. And again, teleologically or evolutionarily, we think this is because the body sensing this loss of weight is trying to defend itself immediately against further loss, which could lead to death by starvation and certainly will affect the reproductive efficiency of that individual. We know that the amount of body fat has a powerful influence on reproduction. If you get women below a critical amount of body fat, they don't ovulate, and this causes reduction, obviously, in fertility, and from an evolutionary point of view, that's a dead end. So, so the question that's burning in my mind, and I'm, but I'd like to return to in just a moment, and I'm sure a lot of the people listening have the same question, is, is there any way to prevent this from happening, this efficiency, this metabolic shutdown that makes it hard to lose weight? But again, we'll loop back to that in just a minute. So returning to the um, the woman that went from 130 to 150 to 170 and then got reduced to 150, you're making the case, and I find it very compelling, that the body perceives this as a threat to its energy stores and therefore goes into shutdown mode. But why would it need to do that at 150 pounds? I mean, why not wait till you're down to the point where starvation is really a possibility? I, You know, with people gaining more and more weight and some people being quite heavy in society, why would the body feel a need to defend itself at still high, very high weights before you're 
anywhere near the point where your life is threatened right. by depletion of energy stores. So this is, a, again, a very important and not fully um, elucidated question, but what we think is this, that there are powerful genetic influences on where this point at which the body begins to resist reduced body weight occurs. We refer to this as a threshold. You go through the threshold and you kick in this very powerful resistance to further weight loss, which occurs, which is manifest as a reduction in energy expenditure and actually an increase in the drive to eat. And we think that's what's happened over evolution is that the population, the populations that are best able to defend themselves against all sorts of different environmental threats of one kind or another are those that have a broad distribution of degrees of body fat within the population so that those with low body fat would be able to perhaps run faster, avoid predation more readily. Those with high body fat would survive under circumstances of um, loss of uh, calories in the environment, uh, some sort of environmental catastrophe, so that the way we look at it, our population, our human population, really represents a distribution of capabilities, which is exactly what evolution or Darwin would predict. You see a range of possibilities represented, and the reason for the range is not because in any given particular instant in time one is better necessarily than the other, but because they in the aggregate represent a defense against all possibilities in terms of environmental mischief, if you will. So that the reason for having some extremely obese people in the population in a teleologic or Darwinian sense is to, is to protect our species against a, a calamity that would cause the death of 90% of the individuals in the population. So we're programmed to uh, defend ourselves against weight loss because of the possible uh, threat of starvation. Um, are there gender differences in this? Do, do men defend themselves differently than women or vice versa? So the short answer to that question is no. So we've studied men and women. We've studied obese and lean individuals in exactly the experimental paradigm or protocol that I described, all done as inpatients, all carefully controlled, very highly specified liquid formula diet. So we don't see any major differences between males and females in this regard. Having said that, there are differences in the amount of body fat that women have and where the body fat is located. But if you compare a woman to herself or a man to himself, you see exactly the same levels and type of defense. It's just that a woman will actually generally be defending a somewhat higher body fat than a male. Okay, so you began studying this issue way back in the 1980s. Uh, you're still doing it, but of course the work is incredibly more sophisticated now. Could you give us an example of some of the work that you're doing now to address this issue? The most recent work that we've done in this area is in several sort of aspects of this general kind of protocol. One is to image the brain itself using a technique called functional magnetic resonance imaging, which allows us to see activity in parts of the brain that we know not only control food intake at a what we call a vegetative or a more automatic level, but some of the parts of the brain that affect responses to food, addictive behaviors that have to do with actual motor activity and executive function. 
And when we look at the brains of individuals who have lost body weight, we can see really very characteristic changes in those individuals and parts of the brain, is, as we say, light up and other parts get quiet. And the parts of the brain that are affected are consistent with what I have described in terms of some of the behavioral responses. We've also carefully studied the behavior of people who are maintaining reduced body weight and can see in these very careful experimental studies that their drive to eat is definitely increased when they're maintaining a lower body weight. And the third limb or aspect of these studies, which is, again, quite exciting to us, is that back in the 80s, we began working on trying to identify the signal or a signal that might come from body fat. This is the elusive hormone that I mentioned, which is produced by body fat in proportion to the amount of body fat is the hormone leptin that we and others at Rockefeller discovered. And what we have found is that, as you might predict, when an individual loses weight and loses body fat, this hormone is reduced in the blood. This hormone actually provides the signal that tells the brain how much fat is in the body. When you lose weight, the reduction in circulating leptin signals the brain I'm losing weight, there's a threat that I may not be able to reproduce, there's a threat that I may starve to death, and it starts this metabolic and behavioral adjustment that I just described. And quite interestingly, if we inject leptin, it's a hormone, it has to be given by injection, into human subjects who have lost weight at doses just sufficient to put the leptin back to the level that it was at before they lost the weight, but while they're still at reduced body weight, Almost all of what I just described in response to weight loss, meaning the drive to eat, the reduction in energy expenditure, changes in brain imaging, etc., are either totally reversed or move in the direction back towards the way they were before the individual lost weight. This gives us a sense, I think, and convinces us that the weight-reduced state is a state in which the individual in many ways is is abnormal. It's an adjustment to a, um, an unphysiologic state for that individual. They sense it as a threat of starvation and that this hormone, if we can replace it or replace its activity in the brain, which is where it's doing its main signaling, can actually reverse some of these compensations, if you will, and could, in fact, point us to newer kinds of interventions in the treatment of obesity. That do, is, Do we know yet whether that makes it easier for people to maintain the lost weight? So it does in an experimental setting, such as the one I described, in a clinical research center over periods of weeks or months. This definitely has the effect that uh, you just alluded to. Whether this will work in the open field, so to speak, in a um, larger population. This is an area of active investigation by a number of pharmaceutical companies. So this will be asking a subjective rather than tight scientific question, but when you talk to those people, compared to people that haven't had the leptin restored and have all these metabolic occurrences going on that would make them prone to regain weight, what, what do the people say? I mean, what's their, is their experience different? Are there things that they tell you about their relationship with food that, um, that might lead down some interesting paths? Yeah, so this is a very um, interesting and important point. It, it, uh, people listening to this podcast who have lost weight or managed to keep weight off successfully 
will, I would predict, uh, almost universally start nodding their head and saying, yes, I've had this experience. I know what he's talking about, the lower energy expenditure, the drive to eat, and so forth. This is a when you talk to people who've lost weight or lost weight and then regained it, they will almost universally describe having experienced this phenomenon. What's required of them is a high degree of vigilance. Absolutely. And the small percentage who managed to keep weight off, and we're now talking 3 to 5% of individuals who successfully lose weight and can keep it off for, say, four or five years, they will almost universally say, I do it by conscious restriction of energy intake and very, very conscious efforts to increase my physical activity, my rates of exercise. Um, And again, I think this points to the fact that the biology here is real, and it's not just an artifact, if you will, of the fact that we've got these people in a clinical research setting. So back to the group of people that you've worked with who have lost weight, then you restore their leptin to the normal level, they're less prone to gain weight, according to your observations. Do they, do they paint a different picture? Do they say different things than what you'd expect their counterparts to say who haven't had the leptin? So what you're asking is, again, a very important question. Do they have a subjective sense of a difference? And the short answer to this is that some do, some don't. We don't keep them at reduced body weight long enough. Generally, these studies go on for weeks or a couple of months, and the individuals don't necessarily have the ability to compare easily the state when they do or don't have this uh, replacement, but I, th- but you can clearly see it experimentally, and many of them will report a sense that you know they're different when they're getting compound A or compound B. We don't tell them any. These are what we refer to as blinded studies. So at the time that they're going on, they don't know what we're giving them in terms of uh, either saline or drug replacement. So it's hard for them to answer a question like this, and we more or less purposely don't ask it because we don't want to bias them in one way or another. Well, it would be so interesting to know what their experiences are. Are they less susceptible to food cues in the environment? Are they just not think about food as much? Do they find food less pleasurable than they might? Right. You know, there are lists, many, many things that could be on that list of changes. Boy, it would be so interesting to know that. Right. And the studies that we've done on brain imaging and some of the very refined behavioral studies, just looking at how much they'll eat during a meal and asking them if they're full or not, clearly indicate that what I described is happening. And it, I would be very surprised if, if a study were done of the type that you just alluded to, which would be very, very interesting, that you wouldn't see consequences for some of these responses to food, hedonic aspects of feeding and so forth. I'd be very surprised if you didn't see it. So you, you reinforce the well-known point that the, the likelihood of people losing weight and keeping it off is pretty low, um, but you have some very interesting and encouraging results. How optimistic are you that down the road sometime there will be a way to, a pharmacologic way to help people maintain lost weight? You know, there are two points, actually, to your question. One is that when people who are obese uh, and have problems with weight uh, control hear 
me or others in our group talk about this, the response that we often get is, I'm so happy that somebody finally has actually documented what I know to be true. So this is a just describing what we're talking about for many obese people produces a sense of relief because many of their peers, other people in the family, don't fully believe them when they see that what we're talking about occur in terms of both successful loss but then weight regain. So just from that point of view, I think this is very important as a, as a way of sort of heartening individuals who have this problem to understand that it's biology. It's not behavior disorder and it's not due to lack of willpower or whatever. The direct answer to your question is I think that these studies point a way to a very different approach to the treatment of obesity, which is that rather than emphasize weight loss, which most individuals can successfully achieve, at least for brief periods of time, we should be trying to focus on drugs and other interventions that will restore the normal physiology while a person still maintains a reduced body weight. It's sort of like turning the problem on its head in a way. And my guess is that some of the agents that will be effective at relieving the physiology of the weight-reduced state will be much different, very different from the ones that have been tried unsuccessfully by and large to induce weight reduction and much less likely to produce toxicity since the goal will be to restore normal physiology, not to force somebody into an abnormal physiologic state. So I'm quite optimistic actually about the future in terms of using these insights to lead us to novel interventions. Well, that's a very positive note on which to end this podcast. This work is terribly important. I'm so thankful you could join us today. Thank you. Uh, Please visit our website at www.yalerudcenter.org for a list of our other podcasts and other excellent resources. Thank you.